You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. So this afternoon's reading is Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 41. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, Do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Hi, DPC. Uh, man, I certainly hope that we'll be back together in person soon, gathering around God's word together. Uh, but let's pray that uh, despite not being able to do that, that God would be at work in our hearts and minds today. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this time and we ask that uh, by the power of your word and spirit, uh, this day that you would lift our eyes to see the glorious hope that we have in Christ, and then as it were, lower our eyes that we might live lives of watchfulness in the present. And we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know about you guys, but uh, recently I found myself thinking to myself a lot, what on earth is happening in our world? Oh, obviously, the most obvious thing is that we're all living through these grim realities of a global pandemic, uh, another lockdown just these past couple of days, uh, bushfires wreaking havoc over in Perth, uh, a month or so back that there was that mum over in Tullamarine who tragically killed her three kids and then herself. Oh, that's just a couple of things that are in my mind. I'm sure you can think of other things, things that lead you to say, what on earth is happening in our world? Are things that, that really lead you to long for something better, for a better world, a world that's free from all this evil and suffering and sickness and sadness and death. And of course, from a Christian perspective, we know that our longing for that better world will ultimately be satisfied, right? Because our ultimate hope as Christians is that one day the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And when he does, he will, uh, he will condemn evil, he will destroy suffering, he will conquer death, and he'll gather his people together to himself into this world that all of us long for. But a world that's free from all evil and suffering and sickness and sadness and death. If you are a Christian, that is your future hope. But of course, until Jesus returns, there's going to be a whole lot more of that bad stuff. Evil, suffering, sickness, sadness, death. And so if we want to share in that future hope, we've got to live a life of present watchfulness. Watchfulness. I don't mean, but I don't mean being alarmed by everything, being constantly fearful of, about what's going on around us in the world. 
I do mean being alert, being watchful, so that we're ready for Christ's return. But our future hope of Christ's return should lead us to a life of present watchfulness. So first, let's consider three keys that, that I think will help us unlock the meaning of this passage, at least, at least a bit. First, verses 1 and 2 remind us that this passage falls at the end of Matthew 21 to 24, a section of Matthew's gospel that's all set in and around the temple in Jerusalem. And you might remember that in chapter 21, Jesus condemned the temple and its leaders, calling them a den of robbers. And then in chapter 22, Jesus challenged and rejected the authority of the leaders based in the temple. And then at the end of Matthew 23, we saw last week that Jesus delivered his final judgment on the temple and its leaders. He said God would reject the temple. So in Matthew 24, verse 1, when Jesus leaves the temple, he walks away from the temple. It's not just a basic description of his walking patterns, but it's a picture of God's judgment on the temple. Of course, Jesus' disciples don't quite get what's going on. So they call Jesus' attention to the temple. You see that there, to the temple buildings. In Mark 13, verse 1, they say, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. But in verse 2, Jesus says to them, do you see all these things, rather the magnificent temple buildings? Truly, I tell you, Jesus says, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. And it's significant in verse 3 that he does that when he's on his way to the Mount of Olives. Now, you remember in chapter 21, verse 1, Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly from where? From the Mount of Olives. And now when he delivers this, his final judgment on, Jer uh, on Jerusalem and the temple, he does it from the Mount of Olives. Right? In part, that, that's because of geography. Why? When he's sitting on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, it's like he's sitting above Jerusalem and the temple, like a judge on his bench, ready to give his verdict. But it's also because of a prophecy. In Zechariah 14, verses 4 and 5, you might remember that God predicted that one day he would judge Jerusalem and the temple while standing on the Mount of Olives. Jesus predicts the temple's destruction. And 40 years later, that's what happened, right? In 70 AD, God raised up the Romans to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote about it. Right? This is what he said. He said, Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot. No ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Right? This is the first key for understanding this passage. It's set in the context of the temple's destruction. And the second key is found in the two questions of the disciples in verse 3. Take a look at verse 3. The disciples ask Jesus, when will these things happen? That is, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of, of your coming and of the end of the age? Right. So the, the two questions on the table are the timing of the temple's destruction and the timing of Jesus' Return. Now those two questions really provide the basic framework for this passage. 
But that raises the question. The question is, which parts of the passage are about the temple's destruction and which parts are about Jesus' return? And I think that's where the third key comes in. Right? It's a little pattern of language throughout this passage. Right? Because events that are connected with the temple's destruction in this passage are generally referred to by the words, these things. Right? Well, we've already seen in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, do you see all these things? In verse 3, his disciples literally say, when will these things happen? In verse 8, Jesus says, all these things are the beginning of birth pains. Down in verse 34, he says, truly I tell you, <coughs> excuse me, uh, that this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So I want to suggest that, that verses 1 to 14 and verses 32 to 35 are at least primarily about the temple's destruction. Oh, on the other hand, verses 15 to 31 and, and verses 36 to 41 uh, are filled with the words, those days. Right, look at verse 19. Right, Jesus says, how dreadful will it be in those days? In verse 22, if those days had not been uh, cut short, no one would survive. Uh, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days. Verse 36, in that day. Verse 38, in those days. Right? This expression, those days, well, was commonly used by Old Testament prophets to refer to the end of the world. So let's put all this together. But right? I think it shows us that this passage has a twofold structure. Right? Verses 1 to 14 and verses 32 to 35 refer primarily to the near future. Right, to the signs of the temple's destruction. Uh, but verses 15 to 31 and verses 36 to 41 refer primarily to the distant future, right, to signs of Christ's return. Now, this is a pretty tricky passage. Right? Not all preachers or commentators would agree with what I'm saying here, right? I acknowledge that. But I think it makes sense, and I hope that these three keys at least give you, you some sense of how this passage fits together as a whole. Well, having heard his disciples' questions in verse 3 about the timing of the temple's destruction, the timing of his return, in verses 4 to 14, Jesus doesn't give them an exact answer about the timing of the temple's destruction, which might be frustrating, right? But instead, he urges his disciples to watch out for signs of the temple's destruction. First, in verses 4 to 6, he wants them to watch out for false messiahs. But he says that the leading up to the temple's destruction, uh, that many deceivers will come in his name claiming to be the Messiah. Right? They're going to deceive lots of people, Jesus says. Lots of people will be persuaded that this is a leader who's been chosen and anointed by God. Right? So to bring, as it were, God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. They're Messiahs. And we still see this today, don't we, with some social and, and political leaders. By leaders who are praised by either progressives or conservatives as, as offering an almost messianic hope. Well, that, that also happened in the first century after Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, for example, you can read about a guy named Thutis. He went around performing, or at least claiming to be able to perform, miraculous signs and wonders. And he really built up quite a following uh, until eventually he was killed and his disciples scattered. Right, Jesus says, watch out for false messiahs. 
And then in verses 6 to 8, he wants his disciples to watch out for wars, famines, and natural disasters. And of course, the events in these verses could, could really happen in any period of history, couldn't they? Right? But they also happened in the first century, in and around Palestine. In 40 AD, for example, there were indeed rumours of war. When the Roman emperor, emperor Caligula tried to put a statue of himself in the temple. And then in 66 AD, the war actually did break out as Jewish zealots tried to overthrow the Romans. In Acts 11, verse 28, you can write that down, we see that between 41 and 54 AD, there were a series of famines in Palestine. In 61 and 63 AD, we see that there were earthquakes in Phrygia and Pompeii. And now, of course, in predicting these future events, Jesus doesn't want his disciples to get kind of caught up in speculating about the future. You know, getting out their charts and their timelines and their graphs. That's not what Jesus wants. Why Jesus predicts these events? Because he wants his disciples to watch out for them. Why? So that they'd be ready for the temple's destruction and remain faithful to him. No matter what the cost. And in verses 9 to 14, Jesus warns them about that cost. He says, watch out for persecution, falling away, and mission. In verse 9, Jesus warns his disciples that they will be hated and persecuted and even killed. And this persecution will happen, Jesus says, because of him. That's important to be clear. His disciples won't suffer because of their own bad character and choices. But they'll suffer simply because they publicly identify with Christ and his teachings. And maybe that sounds a bit familiar. But I think increasingly today, it, it really doesn't matter how kind and gracious and humble and, and gentle you might be. But if you publicly identify with Christ and his teachings, right, but particularly on certain hot-button issues, but yeah, you're more than likely to experience some sort of persecution. But yeah, it's a real test of our faith, isn't it? But yeah, in fact, in verse 10, Jesus says that, that for some people, the, uh, the, the test is going to be so great uh, that they'll turn away from their faith in Christ uh, and they'll betray their brothers and sisters in Christ. Indeed, verse 11 says that they'll follow after various false prophets. Right? The picture being that they find a, a speaker, a leader, a teacher uh, that seems to be offering a new and better vision for life, health and happiness and prosperity, no doubt. No doubt, uh, a whole lot less suffering. So verse 12, the result, Jesus says, is that the love of many for him will grow cold. They'll fall away from their faith in it's a really horrible picture. But not everyone, Jesus says. Look at verse 13. And Jesus assures us there that the many will stand firm to the end and be saved. And verse 14 is interesting, right? Because it tells us that they won't stand firm simply by retreating from the world in fear. That's tempting, isn't it? Right? But Jesus said they'll stand firm by actively proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to the world, right? To every part of the world. To people of all nations. Right? And Jesus says once that's done, right, once the gospel's been proclaimed to all nations, the end will come. Right? So if you want to stand firm in Christ, or if you want to be someone who speeds up the return of Christ, 
then get busy proclaiming the gospel of Christ to all nations. Now, Jesus doesn't promise his disciples that they'll avoid suffering if they follow him. In fact, he promises them that they are certain to suffer. But he also assures them that if they stand firm in trusting him in the midst of their suffering, they will certainly be saved. And I want to skip down to verses 32 to 35, where Jesus urges his disciples to watch out for the leaves on the fig tree. In this part of the world, the fig trees would lose all their leaves in winter, but in spring they would start to blossom again. And those new leaves, those new shoots were a sign that summer was coming, even if you didn't know exactly when it was coming. And of course, remembering that in chapter 21, Jesus applied this uh, metaphor of the fig tree to the temple. We see that Jesus is saying here that the temple's destruction is near. It's coming. Even if his disciples don't know exactly when it's coming. So in verse 34, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things. Notice. These things, again, it's about the temple, until all these things have happened. See, for some people, these words have been a bit confusing. I think mostly because they've misread them to to be referring to Christ's return rather than to the temple. For example, the the famous atheist Bertrand Russell once said about these verses, uh, Christ certainly thought that his second coming would occur before the death of all the people who were living at that time. But but once you see that that Jesus is talking here about the temple's destruction, right, in 70 AD, not not, not his second coming, then there's really no issue with him saying that at least some of the people in the generation listening to him would live to witness it. No problem with that. So in verse 35, Jesus assures his disciples that while the temple will pass away, and while this heaven and earth in its current form will pass away, with all its evil and suffering and death, while those things will certainly pass away, one thing that will not pass away is the words of Jesus. Right? They will never pass away. You can bank your life on them. This is a remarkable claim of Jesus, because it's a claim that God makes about his words in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. Right? You can read that later on. The point is that this tells you something really important about who Jesus is. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Matthew said that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Right? Jesus' words are just as reliable as God's words. Jesus' words are more permanent even than this heavens and earth that we live in. And Jesus urges his disciples to watch out for signs of the temple's destruction. He also urges them to, to watch out for signs of his return. Uh, the first of those signs in verses 15 to 19 is a pretty weird sign. Right? It's called the abomination that causes desolation. Right? It seems strange to us, uh, very strange, right? but it would have been a bit more familiar for Jesus' disciples being Jewish men. Uh, because look, in verse 15, Matthew says, uh, this is something that was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. If you look back in Daniel, see in Daniel 9 verse 27, uh, it says, he will confirm a covenant with, uh, with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, uh, he will put an end to all sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up, what? He'll set up 
an abomination that causes desolation. Right, so this abomination refers to someone doing something inside the temple uh, that will defile the temple. Now, the same phrase is, used in, is in, used in a book called First Maccabees. So it's a, a book that records Jewish history between the Old and New Testaments. Uh, and there it describes an incident when the Greek ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, set up a, an altar to Zeus in the temple and then sacrificed a pig on it. So you can imagine for Jews with their laws about kosher foods that that was, that was something abominable. So that's kind of one fulfillment of Daniel 9 verse 27. But Matthew 9 verse 15 is talking, uh, sorry, Matthew 24 verse 15 uh, is talking about a future event. I think it's an event that's partly uh, fulfilled by the Roman general Titus in 70 AD, right? Because when Titus was busy destroying Jerusalem and the temple, uh, he actually established his command center inside the temple. But as Matthew says, he was standing in the holy place. Right? But this passage, I think, also looks further into the future, beyond Titus. But it's true that the uh, events in these verses do seem to be pretty tied to first century Palestine. Take a look at the verse. You know, verse 16 talks about those who are in Judea. Verse 17 talks about uh, how people on their flat-roofed houses, like Palestinian houses, uh, they should flee down the outside staircase rather than going back inside. Verse 18 says there won't be time for the field worker to go and collect their cloak. And verses 19 and 20 say that, that fleeing to the mountains is going to be particularly hard for pregnant women and nursing mothers, right? especially if it's happening in winter, because the gorges around Jerusalem were always flooded. Right? Lots of connections between this kind of abomination and the temple's destruction. But there are a couple of reasons why it doesn't fit exactly neatly with the temple's destruction. First, verse 16 uh, says, and Jesus says in verse 16, that the people should flee out of Jerusalem when this abomination happens. Right? But in 70 AD, Titus, the Roman general, surrounded Jerusalem. I tell you, if people wanted to survive, they had to flee into Jerusalem, not out of it. And verse 20 talks about the, the possibility of fleeing Jerusalem in winter. Right? But, if Jerusalem was, uh, but Jerusalem was under siege in summer. That's why we had that image of the fig tree, which leaves come to full bloom in summer. So, so while this abomination is kind of partly fulfilled by Titus in 70 AD, it also looks forward to a, a figure that Paul calls the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, this is all pretty deep and complicated, right? We don't have too much time to talk about it. But 2 Thessalonians 2 says that this man of lawlessness, lawlessness will set himself up in God's temple, and really he'll commit the ultimate abomination of proclaiming himself to be God. And Paul says the appearance of this man of lawlessness will, be, will happen right before Jesus returns, which is what Jesus goes on to talk about in verses 36 to 41. So, so I, think, I think we actually see many fulfillments of this abomination. You've got Antiochus Epiphanes, you've got Titus, you've got possibly other false messiahs throughout history. And it all culminates in the man of lawlessness at the end of the age. Well, pretty complicated. You can ask me about it on the post-church scene. Oh, well, in verses 21 to 25, Jesus urges his disciples to watch out for the great tribulation of God's people. 
By the way, this also comes from the book of Daniel, Daniel 12, verse 1, uh, which says that in the last days, God's people will experience a time of incredible tribulation, distress, and suffering. It's the same word as in verse 21, where, where Jesus says uh, that uh, his disciples are going to experience a time of unparalleled distress, right? great tribulation. Yeah, no, 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 now don't, no doubt the time of the temple's destruction offered Jesus' disciples a taste of that tribulation. Right? And lots of Christians throughout history uh, have experienced periods of intense suffering. Right, but I think this tribulation does refer to, to a period of particularly intense suffering that Christians can expect to experience right before Christ returns. But you mustn't be afraid of it. Jesus doesn't want you to be afraid because look at verse 22. Jesus assures us that in his mercy to his elect, to his chosen people, God's going to shorten those days so that none of his elect will be lost. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus warns his disciples once again about false messiahs. Right? Suffering is always a time when we've got to be mindful of being lured away by other leaders. Now notice that Jesus, the true messiah, never put on a miraculous show to try and uh, he never wanted to manipulate people into following him. Right? These false messiahs have no qualms about that. Well, they'll do whatever it takes to get a following. And Jesus said they'll be quite successful, right? Many will be deceived. Even God's elect might be tempted to follow them. So in verse 25, Jesus says, that's why I've told you ahead of time. He's told us these things, not so that we can speculate about the future or be alarmed and fearful about the future, but so that we can be alert about the future. We can be watchful about the future so that we can always persevere in trusting him. Oh, well, after the great tribulation, there's Jesus' glorious return. In verses 26 to 31, Jesus speaks about the, uh, the nature of his return. Right? Notice four things here. But first, and notice that Jesus will return publicly. Right? Look in verse 26. Jesus says some people will try to give the impression that he's going to return secretly. Right? They'll be like, oh, look, there he is out in the wilderness. Or here he is in the inner rooms. Right? But in verse 27, Jesus says uh, that, that he's going to return uh, publicly and visibly for everyone to see. Right, like lightning in the east that's visible in the west. Or verse 28, like uh, vultures gathered over the top of a carcass. Right, they're obvious, Jesus is saying. Right, Jesus will return publicly. And verse 30, where we see Jesus will return triumphantly, right, with power and great glory. Right, Jesus' first coming was in suffering and weakness. Right, a servant giving his life on the cross. Uh, but his second coming will be in power and glory, right? A king coming to set all things right in his world. Uh, so third, Jesus will return redemptively. Look in verse 29. Right? Jesus says that when he returns, stars are going to fall from the sky, that the heavenly bodies will be shaken. What's his point? His point is that his return is going to have cosmic consequences. Right? The, this heavens and earth as we know it will be completely transformed. Right? No, not because it will be utterly destroyed. No, because it's going to be shaken up. 
I'd shaken until every last bit of evil and suffering and sickness and sadness and COVID and death is gone. Of course, to do that, Jesus must also return justly. In verse 31, and Jesus says that when he returns, his angels will gather his chosen people, his elect, from every corner of the world. This is a picture of the final judgment. It's the day when everyone who belongs to Christ will be gathered to him. And everyone who doesn't belong to Christ will be scattered from him. You might struggle with that. But the reality is that if Christ is going to create that world that all of us long for, he's got to be serious about dealing with evil and injustice in here, in the hearts of people. Like not just dealing with evil and injustice out there in the world. Like Jesus must return justly. That's the nature of Christ's return. And then in verses 36 to 41, we see the timing of Christ's return. Uh, in verse 36, we see that the timing of Christ's return is one big mystery. Right? Not just to the angels, but to Jesus too. Which actually gives us a real insight into just how humble Jesus is. Right? Jesus is truly God, right? the eternal Son of God, sharing in the very nature of God. Right? But in great humility, Jesus willingly embraced all the limitations of becoming truly human. So why is it that Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour of his return? It's because he willingly chose not to know. Right? In submission to his Father, in heaven. And probably unlike you or I, Jesus seems to be quite content with that. Well, he's content because he knows that his heavenly father loves him and that his father's got every single detail under control. Right? And if you're a Christian, right? if you're a child of God, that's something you can know too, isn't it? Well, you don't have to know every detail about the future. You don't have to be in control of the future. You don't have to know when this lockdown's going to end or when Jesus is going to return. Why? Because you know that your lovingly heavenly Father, loving heavenly Father, knows all things, and He's in control of all things. So the encouragement in verses thirty-seven to forty-one is simply to be ready for Jesus' return at any moment, like Noah who was ready for the sudden coming of the flood, right through which God rid his world of all evil and suffering and death. So also, well, whatever we're doing, whether we're working in the field or grinding at the mill or, or typing at the computer, the important thing is that we're ready for the sudden coming of Christ, right through which God will rid his world of all evil and suffering and death. Now, the point is that Christ could return at any moment. Right, to, to create that world that all of us long for. Right, and in the meantime, well, we shouldn't get caught up in speculating about events around us, certainly not in being alarmed and anxious and fearful about, about events around us. But we should be alert. We should be awake. We should be watchful. So that whenever Christ returns, he'll find us standing firm in trusting, following, and proclaiming him. Right, our future hope of Christ's return should lead us to a life of present watchfulness. Let's pray. 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we ask that by the power of your spirit, your word would lift our eyes to see the glorious future hope that we have in Christ. And as it were, lower our eyes, that we might live lives of watchfulness in the present. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.